0: Let's pray. Thank you Lord for your goodness to us that you are faithful that we can trust you that you are good. And we pray Lord for those who have been affected and afflicted by the fires who've lost homes, the lives that have been lost, the families affected and and the uncertainty of the future. Lord, the only thing certain is you. And we pray that you would give us great hope and confidence in you, that you'd give us opportunities to be uh, to help people that are in need and to be praying, to be uh, thoughtful, and seeking you during this terrible time. And we pray, Lord, you would bring comfort, you would bring peace, and, and the name of Jesus would be glorified, that people would come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior through this trial. And we pray, Father, for the Holy Spirit to fall upon us, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would give us understanding of your word. And as we open it today, Lord, that we would... Be receivers of what you have to say. We'd come hungry and thirsty for you. And we do pray, Lord, that you would send the rain, that you would bring relief, that you would sustain those fighting fires and those uh, emergency personnel that have been dispatched and those relief effort workers and uh, for the people themselves that have been displaced. We pray your hand be upon them, that you uh, you would strengthen and provide for all their needs in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21, if you want to turn there. There's a lot that God has made that we can appreciate without being, uh, without full knowledge of it. I think about the body and how it works, and you don't have to be a molecular biologist or to, to be able to appreciate how when you're cut, your blood clots. And it doesn't clot before that um, and give you a heart attack if the body's healthy, Uh, And and we have a mouth to eat, and we have a stomach that can process that food and give strength. It's like God thought of everything. We need to move from place to place, and he's given us feet that we can walk on and run and to pick up objects, to be able to write and to see and to hear. And he's given us all these senses. And and God thought of everything when he sent Jesus, the Son of God, um, born of Virgin Mary, to become a savior for us. He knew that we needed salvation, and Jesus, be, Jesus came as a baby that needed to be held, carried around, cleaned, fed, cuddled. That, that was God in human form. It's, and he reaches, out to our, he reaches out to us today with nail-pierced hands as our savior who's risen and It's like God created Adam from the dust of the ground. He breathed into him a living soul, and it says in all creation there was found no helper suitable for him. There was no counterpart in all of the animal and plant kingdom. And so he took from man a rib, and he created Eve. And they were married. And in a similar way, God looked upon fallen humanity and saw there was no savior there was no one, no hope in this world for man to be forgiven of sin, for for people to have a new life, to be able to go to heaven and live with God forever. That was impossible. There was no plant that could do it. There was no uh, animal or person. So he sent Jesus to be our Savior. Man could not be fruitful and multiply by himself, and we could not save ourselves. So he sent Jesus. And may the wonder of that never be lost on us, that God has come to us, that he has opened blind eyes, that he has raised the dead to life, that we could know him, that we could follow him. And let's be those who praise and thank him. So Luke 2, verse 21, and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, our passage lists three separate and significant actions, the circumcision of Christ, the presentation of Jesus before the Lord, and Mary's purification according to the law. In coming to earth, Jesus, he was subject to the law. We read that in Galatians 4, 4, and 5, where it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, Jesus was born under law so that it could fulfill the requirements of the law so that we could be justified through faith in God. The law was good. It had no power to save. And so Jesus was sent to bridge that gap. And uh, Paul compares the law to a schoolmaster or a governess. It's like while the master's away, the king is on business, the, the child is given into the hands of the governess for correction and guidance and training, but then... Jesus came and fulfilled that. The law required that all male Jews were to be circumcised on the eighth day. That show they agreed to the covenant that God had made with Abraham, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And like John, Jesus was formally named at the circumcision, which likely happened in Bethlehem on the eighth day. Verse 22, it says... That after the days of Mary's purification, that would be 40 days in total, Jesus was brought to present him before the Lord. And I want to go back into the Old Testament to read the law about this because we can miss the significance and how it ties in with Jesus. So Exodus 13, if you turn there, we'll see that a lot of the feasts and a lot of the things that are contained in the law are explained why there was a purpose behind them. That because we are not under law, we may not understand. We wouldn't think of. Exodus 13, verse 1. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast. It is mine. To consecrate, that's to set apart for a purpose. That's to dedicate or to devote. And God had claimed as his own, the firstborn male, of man and beast as his rightful possession. Moving on to verse 11, it says, "'And it shall be when the Lord brings you "'into the land of the Canaanites, "'as he swore to you and your fathers, "'and gives it to you, "'that you shall set apart to the Lord "'all that open the womb. "'That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal "'which you have, the males shall be the Lord's. "'But every firstborn of a donkey "'you shall redeem with a lamb. "'And if you will not redeem it, "'then you shall break its neck. "'And all the firstborn of man among your sons "'you shall redeem.'" The redemption happened when you came before the priest and you gave five shekels for every male at the tabernacle or temple. And so if you had a firstborn male, it was to be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord. If it was an unclean animal and you wanted to redeem it, then you would substitute a lamb for it in the first year. And they use the examples of donkeys here. Like if you have a firstborn male donkey that you must redeem it, that means substitute a lamb for it of the first year, or you have to kill it. And that is a bit shocking to our sensibilities, right? We think, well, that seems pointless, it's wasteful, why would you do that? But even though it's difficult for us to understand, he goes on to explain why they do this. Verse 14, so it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is this that you shall say to him? By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass, when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt." Can you imagine being Job under law with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys, and keeping tabs on which males were first born of those individual animals? That's a lot of work. I mean, that would take like A full-time job to to remember the names, to, to be able to mark them, to know that, okay, now this is the firstborn. This must be redeemed or it must be killed. And the sons are like, why do we go through all this trouble? Like, this seems like a huge job. Why are we doing this? So he's like, when your kids get to the age when they realize this is odd and this is strange and this is a lot of extra work, why do you do that? Why do you pay money for people Or why do you sacrifice these animals? And that was dad's opportunity to say, well, let me tell you about our history. That when we were in Egypt, Pharaoh, he enslaved us, but he would not let us go. And so God, the spirit of God passed over all the homes. And that was the first Passover where they ate the Passover lamb, a male of the first year. And they would sprinkle the blood on the lintel and the posts of the door. And every house that had the blood and had eaten the Passover would be spared because death was default. Any firstborn male in that household would be killed. So it's very significant, right, that, there, that Jesus was presented and why this law was instituted because it was a sign that went all the way back. And he says it should be like a sign on your forehead and on your hand. And to this day, during prayers, uh, Jewish men will wear the tefillin on their foreheads and on their right hand. They'll bind it onto their arm as a reminder of what God had done. And in that little kosher leather box, there are scriptures written. Redeeming firstborn males, it was a reminder of the mighty salvation and deliverance done by God, but also a foreshadowing because we Gentiles are like the donkey Right? And he didn't want us to be destroyed. He didn't want to break our necks. And so what did he do? He sent the Lamb of God to be our substitute so we can live. He's done that for every person. Under law, a woman, after she gave birth, she was ceremonial, ceremonially, that's a hard word to say, unclean for 7 or 14 days, depending on whether it was a male or female. Um, it was similar to when she was on her period. There would be Uh, That would be just your customary impurity is how it puts it in Scripture. Um, But now turn to Leviticus 12.6. This gives us some insight into Joseph and Mary. So just for those who are interested, um, and maybe if you're even not, I'll give you this free information. Uh, After a son, it was seven days plus 33 days of uncleanness before you could go and offer the sacrifice. That's 40 days total. And for a daughter, it was double that. It was 14 days up front and then 66 days. So 80 days later, you could offer this sacrifice for atonement. Leviticus 12 verse 6, it says, when the days of her purification are fulfilled, whether for a son or for a daughter... She shall bring to the priest a lamb of the first year as a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove as a sin offering to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then he shall offer it before the Lord to make atonement for her, and she shall be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who has born a male or a female. And if she is not able to bring a lamb, then she may bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. One as a burnt offering and the other as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for her and she will be clean. So regardless of whether you had a boy or a girl, this atonement needed to be done under law. And it says that a lamb is required, but if you do not have the money to buy a lamb, you can bring two pigeons or two turtle doves. And what did Mary and Joseph bring? Two turtle doves, because they could not afford a lamb. Because if they could have afforded a lamb, that was required. So this tells us that it's by this point The wise men from the east had not come because we see them giving them gold. Had they received gold, they would have had the money to buy a lamb. So to sum up, Jesus was circumcised. He was named at that time. He was presented before the Lord in the temple by Joseph and Mary, along with the offering for atonement for Mary. Okay, back to Luke 2.25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he came into the temple. The arrival of Joseph and Mary in Jerusalem coincided with this meeting with this man named Simeon in the temple, and it was no chance meeting. He's described as just, devout, filled with the Holy Spirit. One might assume, and I think I, I have assumed, that he was an elderly man, but it doesn't explicitly say that. But he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for the Paraclesis, the Messiah that would bring salvation, comfort, And rest, and the Holy Spirit had revealed to this man that he would not see death until he had seen the Christ, the Messiah. So he was on the lookout for the Messiah. I don't think because he had a death wish, but because he wanted the consolation, right? Not only did God reveal to Simeon that he would see the Christ, but he literally led him to Christ. He led him to Jesus. It wasn't like, I'm going to tell you about the future, but it's up to you to figure out how that's going to work out. No, God revealed it to him. God led him, and and he's holding Jesus in his arms. We don't see if he asked for permission. He may have just walked up and taken him. (laughs) I don't know. It was just a funny thought to think about. It's like, he didn't say, after asking permission, he held the baby. <laughs> I assume he did. That would be polite, right? But he came by the Spirit into the temple at the exact same time. And can you imagine it? You're holding the Messiah in your hand. You're holding, it's like, I am holding God in human form. That would just, I mean, I feel a little uncomfortable to hold someone else's baby that's an infant and very you know, spindly and frail, and you don't want to drop the child, and maybe it's just a guy thing. But I was great holding my own kids, but uh, just, it's like, oh no, you, you please hold your baby. I, I don't want to uh, trouble the child. And it says he blessed God. And in blessing that child, he was blessing God, wasn't he? And he lifts up his voice. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Have you ever had a dream or a plan and you said, when this happens, I can die happy? Well, that's what this was for Simeon. That was that moment. This this is the moment when it happened. He's holding the Messiah and goes, now I can go happy. I can go to God happy because I have seen the consolation that I've been looking for. I'm holding Jesus close. I'm holding salvation and consolation in my hands. Not just for the Jews, but a light to the Gentiles, to all the earth, the glory of Israel. He's a a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. That's for all people. He wasn't just the king of the Jews. He is the king of the Jews, but he is a savior to all who trust in him. And as awesome as it would have been to have held Jesus in your hands, we have a greater blessing in that the living savior lives inside of us through the Holy Spirit. We have that kind of fellowship with him. If you guys had the chance, people line up, they queue up to go to See Santa or something. Can you imagine if you could hold Jesus in your hands? Like, that, that would be a pretty long cue. And for different reasons. Maybe just to say you did it. But, or to have that selfie with the child. But this is like a holy moment where the, the Son of God has come, the consolation of Israel. And this man, led by the Holy Spirit, he is rejoicing in the peace that has come. That he holds. Us as beloved children. You say, nothing's going to happen to this child. And Jesus is like, well, nothing's going to happen to you because I'm holding you because I'm alive and I am a savior. Luke 2, verse 33, And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Luke is very careful not to ever refer to Joseph as the father. He was his stepdad because he had been sired by the Holy Spirit. Joseph and Mary, it says, they marveled at what Simeon said. They were amazed. They knew he was the Messiah, but this is like blowing their minds at the scope of Christ's ministry. That they hadn't told anybody, likely, that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, make way. We should go to the front of the queue. This is the Christ, the son of the living God, when they walked into the temple. They weren't blowing trumpets or anything. They just came in as a humble family with their turtle doves under the law. And they submitted to the law. And they waited their turn like everybody else. And then this guy comes in, filled with the Holy Spirit, and just is holding the baby and blessing God and saying, this is the one. This is the consolation of Israel. This is the glory of Israel. I'd marvel too. Now, the the glory of Israel, that's a phrase that's loaded with meaning. It goes back to 1 Samuel 4. The the wife of Phinehas, in her dying moments, when she heard the ark of God had been taken, she named her son Ichabod, because that means the glory has departed. And she said, because the ark has been taken, the glory of God, the glory has departed from Israel. Now, why did she call the ark the glory of Israel? Well, because the ark was the one item inside the holy place where uh, that's where the presence of God dwelt. It wasn't because it was a gilded box and it was fancy and special. It was only special because that's where God dwelt. That's where atonement was made one time a year when the high priest would bring the blood of the sacrifice into the holy of holies and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. It's like the presence of God visually is looking through the mercy seat, the blood of the sacrifice to the law that was contained there, the law and the pot of manna and the rod that budded. It's like that is the glory of Israel, not the box, it's God. And so he's calling Jesus this and they're like, wow, this is amazing. He's the one that saved us out of Egypt. He's the one who's given us the law, the one who has anointed Aaron, high priest, the one who daily provided us bread in the wilderness. The people that ate that manna, they're dead and gone, but Jesus is the living bread now come down from heaven. It's all so saturated in meaning. And calling Jesus the glory of Israel, it connects well with Isaiah 7.14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, that God has come. Jesus wouldn't be a man anointed with the Holy Spirit. He would be God made flesh, a man, and anointed with the Holy Spirit. Simeon now turns his focus from the child and to Mary. He, he blessed both of them, Joseph and Mary. And uh, he said, this is a sign that it will be spoken against. And I imagine this sign of a virgin conceiving had already been spoken against through the village gossip and questioning. They were sussing, the, let's say, the... Uh, the real father, who is the father? You know, Mary goes away for three, for months. She comes back pregnant. What happened? Yeah, the virgin birth, that's usually not going to get you off the hook if you say, well, you know, it was immaculate conception. No, that doesn't happen, except this time. It says, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. The order is interesting because we would say rise and We would say rise and fall because you have to rise before you fall. But he puts it in the opposite order, the fall and rising of many in Israel, because the spiritual order there is revealed that we've been dead in sins and now we've been raised with Christ. We've fallen upon him for our salvation in faith, and we have now been restored to new life. Those who humble themselves, they're the ones that God will lift up. Jesus told that parable about the, uh, to some unbelieving Pharisees about the chief cornerstone. And he said these guys were working, and uh, it's like this chief cornerstone had been quarried out by a master craftsman, sent to the job site, and the workers go, oh, this doesn't fit in with our plans, and they rejected it. And it's like Jesus did not fit in with the Pharisees' plans of what the Messiah should look like. Because they had an expectation. They had it all planned out of how things should happen, perhaps. But Jesus said in Luke 20:18, whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. So whoever falls on that stone in humility and repentance and faith, they are the ones who will rise. And many would fall in death as they followed Jesus, but Jesus says, if you believe in me, you will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. And then Simeon turns to Mary specifically, and he says, a sword's going to go through your heart too. You're going to be pierced. The word of God, it's often called the sword of the spirit, um, from the Ephesians 6 passage. If you can I, I can't imagine it, but growing up with Jesus, and he would say things, that just pierced your heart because he knows your motives and he knows your intent. And he doesn't do it callously or, or brutal in any way, but growing up with that would be one thing where the word of God is coming from a human mouth every day. And then to be there when he's crucified and you hear people vilifying him and mocking him. This is the one who raised the dead. And She had a maternal instinct with him. I mean, they had a bond where she was his mother. She had a very unique relationship with him. And she's hearing what people are saying. She's seeing what people are doing. And she was there when he said, "Uh, mother, behold your son to John. And John, behold your mother. When he was handing her off into the care of John. And then to hear him breathe his last and say, it is finished and her hopes at that moment likely like the disciples were finished it was only resurrection that could bring the healing and the restoration of soul that she needed the pain she experienced at his death it was raw it was real and Simeon saying this is in your future there is suffering in your future praise the lord where there is suffering god provides great Consolation. And there he is, Jesus. It's not even a a great, I mean, it's on the side of great benefit if you say, well, here's consolation, and there is a sword in your future, there is piercing coming. Which would you prefer? To just avoid the sword or to be pierced, yet have the consolation forever. See, it's not just temporary consolation. It's consolation today. It's consolation and comfort ongoing and forever because we, will be, we are in the presence of God by his grace. And one day we're going to be free of these corruptible bodies and the, the snares and the weights that are in this world. That is going to be a, a great day. Luke 2, verse 36, now there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in, in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. They come in, Simeon's holding and blessing the baby, blessing God, praising him, and suddenly, at the exact moment, this notable woman named Anna comes into the picture. She's an elderly lady, a prophetess of the tribe of Asher, and that's significant because that's a tribe of the northern kingdom that uh, was destroyed. The, those 10 tribes were pretty much routed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and the northern kingdom was gone, never reinstated. Uh, so she had maintained her genealogies, and they knew she was from the tribe of Asher. So it just shows God's grace, right, and his preservation that he has kept a remnant from all those 12 tribes. Um, and there's two ways to interpret her age. You could see her as plainly being 84, um, I would lean towards the older interpretation, which says she was married at at a traditionally young age, which would be from puberty to the age 20, um, and then lived with her husband for seven years, was widowed, and then continued for 84 years in widowhood, and she devoted herself to the service of God in the temple. It says, with fastings night and day. The reason why I would lean towards that interpretation is because it says she was of great age. It didn't just say she was 84. And then it says that she had been widowed for about 84 years. So because of that, I would lean towards she's probably over 100 at this time. It says she, at that instant, came into the temple saw Jesus, she gives thanks to the Lord, and spoke of him, Christ, to all those who looked for redemption in Israel, in Jerusalem. So she's living in the temple. She's at the grounds day and night, serving in various ways. And uh, that's something that really caught my eye. It's like, when you think of serving God, what, what comes to the top of your list? It's likely you don't put prayer and fastings as a top service unto God. But they are worthy services. This is a way to serve God. Verse 37, it says fastings. So there are various kinds of fasts, right? There's a complete um, no eating of food or drinking of water for a, a time. But it could be in degrees. It could be fasting from an activity or something. And instead of eating that thing or drinking that thing, you're putting God in the place of that. And it's a spiritual discipline that we'll do, it's a, it's a discipline of self-denial we do in obedience to God as he leads us, because we realize that it's, it's not um, by bread that we live, but by every word that proceeds from God. So if God says, put off eating today and be in prayer, we can do that, because he will strengthen us too, because it's his spirit who will uh, keep us going, just like he kept Moses going and Elijah going and, and Jesus going after 40 days in the wilderness. And you can pray and fast at any age. And you can do it anywhere. You don't have to be in a particular place. They had learned, both Simeon and Anna, that, that lesson that God intended the children of Israel to learn, that man does not live by bread alone, but by everywhere that proceeds from the mouth of God. They looked for him, they praised him, they proclaimed him. You see her proclaiming to everyone who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And the, the idea of redemption is to ransom, it's to return to the original owner. Mankind, we've been alienated from God because of sin. And Jesus came to earth to atone for the sins of the world so that we could be restored to fellowship and eternal life with him. It made me think are people looking for redemption today? I frankly don't know if we set the bar that high. I think we could settle for feeling better or uh, salvaging a bad situation or avoiding a negative consequence or to get what we want. Like that, that's more, I think, what people can be looking for rather than redemption. But see, man can't redeem themselves. It's kind of like when you drive by the road and you see those aluminium and plastic cans. Can, and they have a 10-cent redemption value, can that can redeem itself? No, it's just going to lay there and rot. The paint's going to fall off of it. It's going to be crushed under a tire. There's, that, there's no power in that to redeem itself at all, to return it to that return and earn kiosk and get your 10 cents back because you're receiving back what it's, it's like. I'm giving you your can back, so please give you my 10 cents back. God's, much more interested in the souls and lives of people. That's what he wants. He wants people to be redeemed, and so he sent Jesus to pick us up. When we were dead in sins, and we had no power to save ourselves or redeem ourselves, if you want to be redeemed, there is redemption in Jesus, and he will redeem you. You can't redeem yourself, but when you trust in him, that's that's the procedure, that's the process of recognizing I need redemption, and then coming to Jesus for redemption and she's like there he is the consolation of god the glory of israel the messiah he's here anyone who's willing to listen to this i'm telling him what a good word what a great what great folks and really it's not Simeon and Anna that we should praise it's the Holy Spirit, it's God who filled them and directed them and enabled them to do God's will. But I, I respect and admire that they submitted to the will of God. That's something that I need to grow in, as do likely we all. Luke 2, verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. After they did everything that the law required, it says they went to Galilee. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, it goes into more detail about this point. They did eventually return to Galilee, but the, uh, Matthew says that they were in Bethlehem when they received the wise men who came, the three wise men, or not three, that's the old song, We Three Kings. It doesn't say how many kings, but there were wise men from the east that came bearing gifts. Because there's three gifts, people assume that there was three, but there could have been many, many more. Um, That they brought those gifts of uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And then God divinely warned Joseph about Herod's plot to kill the children. And his his desire was to kill all males two and younger so it's reasonable conclusion that during that time when jesus was one or late one or two that's when they went to egypt and they remained in egypt until god told joseph that it was safe to return after the death of herod and then they went back to nazareth at that point in galilee so the scriptures prophesied Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, that out of Egypt he had called his son, that he would live his part of his childhood in Egypt, and that he would be, grow up in Nazareth and be called a Nazarene. So it's really cool to see how God orchestrated the events of Jesus' life when Joseph and Mary, they were just marveling over the things that Simeon had said, and they didn't rec- realize all of the all the scriptures that needed to be fulfilled and God would fulfill just through the natural leading of his spirit. Where he's like, hey, go to Egypt. It's time to come home. Verse 40, it says that the child grew, became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom. And it's really hard for me to imagine the son of God limited by natural development. You know, learning to to tie his sandals and learning to to eat with a, a utensil and etiquette, like how to just do basic stuff like dress yourself and wash yourself and, um, you know, how to blow your nose. Things like this that, that you don't naturally have coordination to do and you need to learn. He had to learn those things, like us. And he submitted to his stepdad and Mary, his mother, and. We might think that because Jesus was God, he didn't have to learn anything, but he did. Hebrews 5, 7, it it says this, and and this is the thing, is Jesus, God had created man, but having never been a man, there was a new level of experience and understanding, like even if that's possible, that God had because he went through it too. Because he, he experienced temptation, as we do, Hebrews 5, 7, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he learned obedience. He was not disobedient. But he learned it. He experienced it. And he prayed, like he created the human body to have tears, but he shed tears. And he created the human body to have blood coursing through and providing oxygen to all of the the cells so things can live and grow. And he, he allowed his to be poured out. He went through all that. Becoming the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he was obedient to that death on the cross. The grace of God, it did not keep him from suffering. Because it says the grace of God was upon him. But he suffered. Yet he had consolation in his father. He was made strong to accomplish God's will to redeem sinners. And as we remember his death and his resurrection, how should we live? So why don't you turn, please, to Hebrews 13, starting in verse 10. This is following on from that passage about Jesus learning obedience by the things which he suffered. Because Jesus was a man, he prayed. And he prayed, it says, vehemently to God who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Hebrews 13.10, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. To eat of the sacrifice of that first-year lamb, or the ox, oxen that would be brought in, only sanctified priests and Levites could eat of the sacrifice at the temple. But we who have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, which essentially is an altar, we have spiritual food we can partake of and a life-giving source that they are not, were not worthy to have under law. So he's saying... Because of the new thing that God has done in sending Jesus, we are to go outside the camp of Judaism and to go to Jesus, to be looking to Jesus, because it's from him that we have been sanctified. He was outside the camp. He was outside the gates of Jerusalem when he was crucified. and But through him, we can come into the presence of God. We are part of his body now as the church. So when we have the, the cup, which is the new covenant in his blood, the bread that's broken, like the broken body of Jesus, we're we we are no longer serving the tabernacle, because that's what it says. Those who serve the tabernacle, we serve the one who has made us living temples, temples of the Holy Spirit, and we're one body with one another. Being one with Jesus, like he prayed in John chapter 17. It's just phenomenal. So, we have in this chapter the shepherds of Bethlehem, they sought him. They proclaimed him Simeon. He held Jesus and blessed God. Anna saw Jesus. She gave thanks to God. But ultimately, Jesus would be rejected, he would be a reproach. Like, people are really happy. The people in this passage are really happy that Jesus has come, but later in his life, people rejected him and they they would not have him as their savior. So there was reproach associated with Christ and being a follower of Christ. But we should go forth to him bearing his reproach. That's part of taking up the cross of Christ, right? The reproach, the curse of that cross was laid upon him. So we are to identify with him. Continuing in verse 14, for here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But do not forget to do good and to share for which with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Nothing here on earth is going to last. We don't have a continuing city. We seek the one to come. We look to Jesus. Like Simeon looked for the consolation and glory of Israel, we're called to look unto Jesus by faith, trusting that in him we have consolation and salvation. And by Jesus, we are to continually, it says, offer the sacrifice of praise to God by giving thanks to his name. So we we thank God, we praise him. Simeon thanked God for saying, he said, now I can depart in peace. We can live and walk in peace today. It's not in some distant time where we can experience the peace of God that passes understanding, that guards our hearts and minds. And let's not forget to do good, to share, to serve God in fastings and prayers night and day for his glory. Jesus laid down his life for us sinners so we could be redeemed, living sacrifices unto him. How beautiful that God would reach out to us, that he would give us a hope of salvation and consolation, that the glory of God would come and can fill us through his spirit. If I could please have the worship team come up. We will have a song. During that time, Please come up in a couple of rows and receive of the bread and cup and then I'll lead in a prayer. I think the we and the world are often looking for answers. We're looking for hope in this world and, and there's no hope here. It's in Christ alone. We have hope and consolation Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all. And thank you for sending Jesus to be our Savior, that you became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld your glory with eyes opened by your grace. Lord, except you open our eyes, we cannot see. And we cannot perceive anything of your word or your truth, your wisdom, your power, and your righteousness. And I pray, Lord, you would open our eyes so we might see you more clearly. Like the blind man who, when you touched him and he, he could see, but he said, I see men as trees walking. He didn't see very clearly. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you as our consolation and our Savior and that you are enough. Your grace is sufficient, that you are good and you are life and the light of the world, the Lamb of God, sent to be our Savior. Thank you for being our substitute. Thank you for allowing us for taking those blows and, and persevering through the pain and the separation from the Father so that we could know you, so that we could be brought into the family of God and be part of the body of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your acceptance, for your forgiveness, for your cleansing, that we, you've washed away our shame and our guilt forever, that we have a hope, a living hope, and a hope in the heavens that does not fade away, reserved for us. Lord, I pray that we would, we would abide in your peace and until the day we depart this planet, Lord, put praises on our lips unto you. Give us words of thanksgiving and encouragement. And I pray that through us, Lord, many would come to know the Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would be as Simeon and Anna who proclaimed you boldly We weren't ashamed of the gospel. Thank you for redeeming us. Thank you for ransoming us, Lord. And we pray that you would uh, be honored and glorified as we proclaim your death till you come. In Jesus' name, amen.